hear Skull Rock Podcast on Spotify, Anchor FM, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and now Audible and Amazon Music. Alexa, play Skull Rock Podcast. Playing Skull Rock Podcast from Amazon Music. Skull Rock Podcast, talking all things Disney, with your hosts, L. John Goh and Dave Bossert. Welcome to Skull Rock Podcast. If this is your first time, welcome. Every week we talk all things Disney and pop culture with never-before-heard stories, behind-the-scenes moments from some of your favorite Disney films, theme park attractions, performances, books, music, and much more. I'm one of your co-hosts, Al John Go, and you can email me, A-L-J-O-N, at SkullRockPodcast.com. And I'm Dave Bossard, artist, filmmaker, author, and welcome to the Skull Rock Podcast. If you love Disney and pop culture, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And now we can be found on Amazon Music and Audible. Like and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And you can also email me at Dave at SkullRockPodcast.com. Well, Al John, I am in the Skull Rock podcast. podcast of mobile studios <laughs> and uh i am broadcasting from long island new york yeah your old hometown your stomping grounds the old stomping grounds that's I right love i love it so how was your flight over it was absolutely fantastic and you know something the weather i mean it's in the 90s here mm. in the new york area uh it's it's amazing i guess it's, yeah it's, summer it's in full beautiful. effect that's it nice. Is. Summer is in full swing. I was down at Jones Beach this morning uh, for the sunrise. It was oh, gorgeous nice. and uh, everything's going well. I can't, you know, I, I have to say the Skull Rock uh, mobile uh, uh, podcasting studio is uh, is serving me well. Oh, that's good because I've got a little suggestion. I might, I may have to when you're because now that the world is opening back up and now you're going back to your jet setting ways. I'm yeah. thinking, you know, I'm going to send you a link so you can have a, a, a mobile uh, microphone with a little stand so you don't have to hold your mic all the time. I know. I, I, that's the one thing I do miss is not having my <laughs> mic on the, uh, uh, on the stand at, uh, at my office. But you, you remind uh, me hey, so much of like, yeah, you remind me so much of like Howard Cosell, their man on the street. <laughs> Howard Cosell here. There you go. You know, and maybe at some point we'll be able to broadcast live from uh, some fan conventions. Oh my gosh, that would be great! I know that we're going to be doing something special for the uh, anniversary of Walt Disney World. It should be a lot of fun. But uh, yeah, it'd be amazing to do these meetups uh, on the West Coast and East Coast whenever you know you you swing around and do some things. I don't know if the mouse has called you back to do uh, any special pro uh, programs or any special pro uh, things. I mean, you know, the mouse will call you whenever the mouse calls you yeah but you know something they haven't even called employees back to the office yet oh my you goodness. know but i but i suspect that's going to happen a lot of office a lot a lot of companies are starting to tell their employees that they want them back well a lot of people are, well that's a good thing that's a really good thing and i can tell you that a lot of our listeners will want to get in touch with you especially for next week's episode uh, for the big uh, memorial day weekend celebration we got planned that's right. And it's going to be you and me together. That's oh. it. We're not going to have a special guest. It's just going to be you and I talking yeah. all things pop culture and Disney. And we're going to encourage folks to send in your questions. And I would just say you can ask me anything you want. That's right. Ask 
Dave anything. We're going to do a hashtag ask Dave anything, which will be great. And I've got some questions ready to fire off at you, which will be great. You know, this is not, uh, I'm not going to, I'm not going to put you against a wall. I'm not going to put Dave in the corner. I'm going to, we're, we're going to explore. You can do it. You can do it. I don't mind. I don't mind. Put me in the corner. No, man, this is going to be a lot of fun. So ask Dave anything. Use the hashtag ask Dave anything when it comes to uh, all things Skull Rock podcast, all things Disney, all things animation, all things film and special projects that you've been, been involved in. And, and I can't and wait books and books, and books of course, yeah. books. Are you kidding me? Yeah. And um, you know, your award-winning book is doing very well. I just want to give a little plug, a shout out to 3d Disneyland. Like you've never seen it before because it's Thank such you. an amazing book. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. All right. Well, yeah, I always, I always like a shameless plug. <laughs> of course. <laughs> shameless plug. It is. But you know, I, I should have probably said, oh. uh, you can't put baby in a corner. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody puts baby in the corner. I mean, if, if, if we're making pop culture a reference, we might as well. Here, you, know? you see, I, yeah. I set it up, Dave. You know, it's like a joke grenade. You got it. A little delayed reaction there. Uh, it was a delayed, delayed explosion. <laughs> Skull Rock Podcast ripped from the headlines. It's Skull Rock Podcast headline news. Dave, Dave, Dave. What is going on over at Warner Media? What is going on? It's so weird. It's like um, thing. Listen, yeah. Al, Al John, we are witnessing the beginning of the streaming wars consolidation. Oh my! That's you know everybody was rushing into setting up their streaming platforms, but we all know there's too many of them out there, and yeah. there has to be some kind of consolidation, and that's what's starting to happen. AT and T is essentially spinning off Warner Media, and combining it with Discovery. And I think it's an admission on AT&T's part that they failed in their big acquisition of Time, Time Warner. Uh, yeah. and, and, and they're still going to own, I think, 71% of the new company. So the shareholders are going to do okay. But uh, I think what this really speaks to is a consolidation in the streaming uh, sphere, and and that's what's going to happen here. Yeah, who knows what the future of DC Comics is going to be? It's kind of in a weird place, just in a really weird place. But I can see, I can see this in the crystal ball, Dave. I'm thinking to myself already. T-Mobile and Netflix are partnering up. I, I can almost see the two of them joining forces at some point. You know, look, all I can say is that, you know, I think that the DC franchise uh, needs to be managed the way the Marvel franchise is being managed. Right. And, you know, the DC franchise has had uh, fits and starts is the best way to describe it. They've had some some good ones and they've had a lot of turkeys. Yeah, it's been Uh, really weird. Yeah, and, and it's a shame because they've got such great properties, you know. So I'm hoping that 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 there'll be some changes on that front. But hey, you know what this combination does with uh, Warner Media and Discovery Channel creating that new streaming powerhouse? Really, it, it puts NBC's Peacock streaming channel and uh, CBS Viacom sort of uh, behind the eight ball, if you will, you know, because they may have to do something to strengthen their presence. Yeah, and we saw that already with how CBS All Access was rebranded earlier or last year as Paramount Plus uh, moving forward. And I'm sure there's going to be more, more changes to come. 
Well, uh, the other thing we have to mention, though, is that Amazon is uh, in talks to purchase MGM Studios. Unbelievable. That's the, the James Bond franchise, Terminator, Alien, uh, and a very deep library of films. That is unbelievable. I mean, what a juggernaut that's going to be. Uh, any Anything that Amazon will eat up at this point, I'm sure, will just go golden. And, uh, yeah, they will spare no expense. It's not like they don't have the 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 money to make it happen. But anyway, yeah, it's going to be inter- interesting to see what happens. Yeah, you we'll, know, yeah, we'll who knows? Maybe, maybe Apple is going to buy NBC universal. Oh my gosh. They got the money. They could probably do it. It's going to be interesting to see how much of that is going to be considered. At what point does it, is it a monopoly? You know, when there's like five key players, I don't know. It's, I don't know. It's going to be crazy. Well, I tell you what, fans were sent into a frenzy on social media. This is from Newsweek uh, this past week. Uh, it's believed to report that uh, uh, Lucasfilm president Kathleen Kennedy, who is a producer of Star Wars films, uh, said that there was a shakeup. And we have now Dave Filoni, who is the creative director Uh, He is the episodic director, writer, showrunner of The Mandalorian, as well as the uh, Lucasfilm animation classics, the new Star Wars Bad Batch, which is uh, on Disney Plus, just started a few weeks ago, as well as Star Wars The Clone Wars, um, and and is a great guy. I have to say, I've met Dave Filoni and interviewed him several times on the old podcast, and he is just a really great guy. He was handpicked by George Lucas uh, and had come in and studied under George Lucas for a good 11 years about filmmaking and about the Star Wars franchise, about what is at the heart of it. And uh, it looks like his role of, of creative executive creative director and executive producer has been updated on the website. And when that happened, everyone just kind of went bonkers about it because it seems like now um, you've got a guy that is uh, definitely knows what's going on with Star Wars. Uh, I guess going to be showrunning the the Kevin Feige way, right? Of uh, the Star Wars universe. Are they teeing him up to uh, take charge of all of Lucasfilm? That's 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 the word on the street. Um, you know, Kathleen Kennedy, I believe, still has a film left under her belt before her contract expires. I think they just renewed it, but I think she's going to do Indiana Jones, and and she, uh, who knows what the future is for Kathleen. But uh, it looks like uh, they're preparing Dave to uh, to do bigger and better things with Lucasfilm. So awesome! Yeah, awesome! Yeah, I, 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 it's great. I, I just can't wait to see the next uh, Indiana Jones installment. Oh, I can't either. I'm just I'm, I'm you know I I'm one of those people that still like Kingdom of the Crystal Crystal Skull. I, I have no problem yeah. with it, you know. But then again, I also love Harrison Ford. So uh, there you have it. Um, how about this? Speaking of animation, Patton Oswald uh, just put this up on Instagram. His new show, Modoc, which is kind of like an adult swim take on the Marvel Cinematic Universe, is now on Hulu. And I have yet to see it, but Kristen and I are both fans of Patton Oswald. We absolutely loved him in Ratatouille, voicing Ratatouille. We loved him in Agents of Shield, and now here he is voicing the crazy, um, the crazy villain Modoc, who's basically. <laughs> a big head in a little robotic body with little feet and little arms. You know, it's like <laughs> he looks like a stuffed animal that's you know, made from a tin can, but he's still just an amazing guy. He's got a family, which is kind of strange. So he's like the head of a household, but he's also a, a murdering machine. <laughs> that, that's and, fantastic. Uh, yeah. So uh, you can check it out. And in fact, you can check out 
that show on Hulu and download the Modoc app on Instagram. And uh, I guess there's a filter you can put on there so you can Modoc yourself, Dave. You could put your face inside that little tin can, that little robotic head of his. So, Gosh, that's crazy. Yes, absolutely. Now, you sent me this tidbit from The Hollywood Reporter. It's Technicolor unveils a restructure plan and setting ambitious goals for feature animation. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, um, uh, Technicolor has been in a in a big transformation for many years. Uh, they own uh, the motion picture company, which is a big visual effects operation uh, that did uh, the Lion King for you know the the updated John Favreau Lion King uh, live action quote live action because it was all digital for the most part, um, and, and many other vis- big big visual effects films. Um, so they're they're uh, announcing that they're going to be doing feature animation uh, in the future. And they're, they're just transforming that company from what was a film laboratory uh, developing film, film stock with the Technicolor process to this big digital uh, animation uh, visual effects company. That's really interesting because that's where I know Technicolor because at the end of the film credits roll and, you know, they have the MPAA and all that stuff. And at the very bottom, it says made with Technicolor, you know, or whatever it's, you know, you're the filmmaker. So, you know, the exact term, you know, made with Technicolor processes or whatever. Yeah. It was, and, you know, the, the films were developed at Technicolor and, you know, uh, early on, uh, Disney, um, uh, had, um, uh, a, uh, uh, relationship with Technicolor mm. back in the 30s when the Technicolor process first came in, yes. the three process, um, uh, Walt signed an exclusive deal with uh, with Technicolor, uh, and he was the only one that had uh, color Technicolor cartoons for a couple of years uh, in the early 30s. Yeah. So, Starting with Flowers and Trees, the Silly Symphony. I was going to say, I remember that specifically because they showed they they used that Technicolor branding at the very top of all those sh- those fi- uh, films, those shorts and, and such. It was really cool. But uh, yeah, it says right here they're looking to double the size of their feature animation business, and they've worked on things like uh, Spin Masters, Paw Patrol, and Paramount's A Tiger's Apprentice. All great stuff, of course. Paw Patrol very popular in our household with the kiddos. So, wow, that sounds great. I mean, more yeah, animation it's, for the masses. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I, you know, again, uh, there's so many companies now doing uh, feature animation. It, it, it's going to be a crowded field out there, but it all boils down to having great stories. That's right. Great stories. And, of course, a lot of uh, your fellow filmmakers and animators and uh Uh, technical people being employed. So we love that. More jobs for all those great uh, talents. And speaking of a great talent, uh, you sent me this to Charles Grodin uh, passes away at the age of 86. Um, Charles is a very, very prolific actor. And he's been on so many great films and TV shows. I mean, uh, what a loss, Charles Grodin. Absolutely. I mean, what a great actor. I was so surprised by this story. And uh, it was really a a shame to see that he was a great comic actor. Absolutely. People might remember him from Beethoven, um, the Beethoven movie, and of course, 
Disney fans love him from the great Muppet caper in 1981, but he has got so many, you know, uh, stage credits to his name, of course, uh, Broadway actor. He's been in so many films. Um, so yeah, he will be missed. So, you know, our hearts go out to his family and all the fans out there for Charles Grodin. What a prolific actor. Incredible. Yes, Incredible. Sir. Well, speaking of incredible, uh, I have to tell you, we have an incredible guest once again. We have the great Tom Cito, animator, director, producer, story artist, you name it. This guy has so many credits. He, he's worked on Who Framed Roger Rabbit, The Little Mermaid, Prince and the Pauper, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, Pocahontas. It goes on and on. I'll mention more when we introduce him. But I think, you know, Tom is plowing through the green room snack table. <laughs> and uh, I, I just can't wait to get him on, the, uh, on our show. Sounds great. Let's do it. Skull Rock Podcast. Interview time. Well, Al John, as promised, we've got a fantastic guest. He is a animator, a producer, a director, a story artist, an incredible artist. He's had an, an amazing 40 plus year career. He's worked on The Little Mermaid. He's worked on Aladdin. He's worked on so many films. I can't even recite them all. I mean, the Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Beauty and the Beast, you know, you name it. He was there during this whole renaissance of Disney animation. And I want to welcome my friend, Tom Cito to the show here at Skull Rock Podcast. Tom, welcome. <laughs> hey, Dave. How you doing? How's everything? Uh, everything's going great. It's so great to have you on, Tom. It's been a while. Uh, I think the last time you and I got together was well before the pandemic uh, at a little restaurant in uh, Sherman Oaks, uh, if you remember that far back. Wow, yeah. no, no. When restaurants were open. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I think I remember restaurants. I've, I've heard of them. I've heard there's such a thing. So. Well, Tom, it's great having you on the show. And uh, I, I like, I, like I've started with most of our guests. I, I want to find out from you, how did you get into the animation business? When, when did it start for you? When did you get the bug? Okay. Well, um, I, grew, was it, um, I grew up in Brooklyn back before it was cool and trendy. <laughs> you know, my uh, my uncles, you know, my father's family, uncles and stuff were all truck drivers on the waterfront. And and um, I started drawing as a, an, at an early age. I love to draw. And I used to draw in like the in, I used to take my parents books and draw on the inside covers because it was blank paper. So so my parents suddenly saw, you know, there's kids drawing all over our books. And it's like, oh, we've got an artist. Quick, go get him some paper. <laughs> and I you know, started scribbling. And then when I was in school, I realized the school, the school artist, the class artist doesn't get beat up as much. So, so this was a good thing. I like that. <laughs> and um, I think I, I always loved cartoons and all. And, and for a while I was interested in comic strips because, you know, um, growing up in New York, you used to get the Sunday newspapers, you get the Sunday funnies and you'd see all the comics and all. And I thought, gee, I wonder if I could do something like that. And then in um, high school, I went to a magnet high school called the high school of art and design. And, and the teacher there showed me how to do animation. You know, and so, the, and the first time you see one of your, one of your, you know, drawings come to life, you're like, wow, mm -hmm. I want to do, I want to do that. That's cool. And then around 1973, there was a big show at Lincoln Center in Manhattan for the 50th anniversary of, of uh, the, the Disney studio. 
And uh, they did a big show at Lincoln Center with the showing of the features. And um, Frank and Ollie and Wooly and Ken Anderson came out. And it's the first time I met like real live animation people. And, um, uh, you know, and, and they showed uh, the, the work reels, the, the, the rough uh, pencil reels of Robin Hood, like the first, the first two reels. And it's like milk call rough animation. You know, and I was absolutely stunned. I was just like, that is so beautiful. You know, like, wow. You know, it's and it's drawings, but they're alive and they're moving, you know. And and it's interesting to this day, like, you know, a lot, you talk to a lot of character animators and a lot of times we, we like the rough drawings more than the cleanups and the finished stuff. I mean, so many people work on it afterwards, the cleanup assistants and the in-betweeners and the painters and all this kind of stuff. But then, but, but the first pass rough animation is sort of raw thinking on paper. And it's just, it's just beautiful to watch, you know? And, and, uh, and, and it's interesting because years later I was talking to people about that Lincoln Center show and, uh, you know, Jerry Beck was there and John Canemaker was there and Dan Haskett. And, uh, you know, there was, there was a bunch of people who later became important people in Disney animation, but, you know, we, we were like, the, and it was funny cause I was talking with John Musker, the, the director of uh, little mermaid and, and, um, that was like a, that Disney show of 1973 was like a road show. And, and they were in Chicago. And, and, uh, and uh, that's where Musker saw it when he was a kid. And, and Bill Croyer, who was later, you know, you know, a top guy on Tron. And, uh, you know, this is the first time he saw it. And then he directed Fern Gully later. Yeah. You know, so it was very interesting to think how influential that one show was. Well, it certainly was uh, something that inspired a lot, uh, a lot of uh, young artists. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, yeah. and 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 when you saw that show, I mean, did that just reinforce the fact that you wanted to get into animation? Yes, yes, yeah, yeah, I did, and 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 I thought, okay, well, this is something I can do. Like, I didn't, I didn't know I could really be a Disney animator, you know, and you know, I thought that'd be, you know, the ultimate, you know, uh, for, for animators. When in those days, when you talked about Disney, that's like being a jeweler and you want to work for Tiffany, you know, or you're a, or or or, or you, you know, working on cars. But then you go, well, I want to work for Rolls Royce. That's like mm. that was like the top line. But I knew I wanted to be an animation person. And it's kind of funny, you know, because my uncles and other relatives and all would just kind of look at me strangely. You know, my my uncle Stanley, who was like this ball truck driver, uh, he, he was great. He was a connoisseur of polka music, and uh, <laughs> you know, and he'd look at me and he go, "So what are you doing? What's like? Uh, what are you doing? Like Mickey Mouse or something? Where you can make money making the, doing that stuff?" I'm like, yeah, <laughs> and he just kind of look at me like I was in from outer space, like none oh, of these weird kids, you know. <laughs> so, so let me ask you this like where when you were in high school did you have your sights set on a particular school you wanted to go to did you or were you gonna like get out of high school and just try and get a job in in the animation business uh, uh um i wanted to go on to to, to college uh you know at that time there was so little animation instruction there was cal arts you know you know um, out in los angeles and um, uh, in New York City, there was School of Visual Arts had courses, and there was Sheridan College mm-hmm. in in Ontario. And those were the that, those were the three, right? That was it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, and you know, and you know, you know, growing up in New York, the idea in nineteen seventy, you know, four or something, seventy three, going going to Los Angeles was like going to the moon. Yeah, like it, it yeah. was so far away. I mean, New Yorkers go to Florida. 
Yeah, yeah. That's, where, that's where they go. And and so the so the idea that you could actually like, you know, just get on a plane and fly to L.A. You know, it's like uh, it was was out of the realm realm of possibility. So so I went to SVA and um, you know visual arts, and it was a nice school. You know, Harvey Kurtzman, the creator of Mad Magazine, was a teacher, mm-hmm. and Will Eisner did the Spirit, and you know, and, and had some good courses there. Yeah, I uh, I I think that uh, was there was one other that I'll mention uh, uh, was the Walter Forster animation book, right? Did you have yeah, that yeah. book? Like, yeah. I, it seems like anybody who was interested in animation, they they seem to bring up that book because it was one of the very few animation instruction books. Yeah, that were out true. there. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, there's hardly hardly anything, you know. Uh, um, uh, yeah, yes, yeah, the Walter T. Foster book that, uh, you know, the animation by Preston Blair. Right. Yeah. And you know, Preston Blair was like one of the great 1940s animators. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And uh, he he was the the brother of Lee Blair, who yeah. was uh, an animator, an artist himself, and he was married to Lee Blair was uh, married to Mary Blair, who's a Disney legend. Mm-hmm. That's true. Yeah, yeah. It was the whole the whole Blair family, and Preston did so like, a lot of beautiful stuff on um, in Fantasia, Dance of the Hours. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, a, a lot of that work. And then at MGM, he did the famous, you know, you, you know, Pretty Girl in the uh, Tex Avery, you know, Wolf commercial, uh, Wolf, you know, cartoons. Yeah, yeah. You know, which was like a a basis for Jessica Rabbit later on. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And so from, from, you went to school of visual arts. Where'd you go from there? Yeah. Well, uh, uh, I started to look around and, 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 you know, and um, there was this, um, there was this group called the CIFA, which is the uh, International Animator Society. It, it, it's, a, it's an acronym for like Association Internationale de Film Animation. But basically it's a bunch of New York animators who would get together once a month and go, you got a job? No. You got a job? No. But at least we hung out, you know. So. <laughs> and that's what I realized, like, oh, there's people doing this for a living. Like, you could, you could, you could actually do this as a job, you know. And then I started to look around. And, um, and, and, and uh, by complete fluke, and, you know, serendipity, whatever, uh, um, uh, Richard Williams was directing a, 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 a musical called the, um, the Adventures of Raggedy Ann and Andy. And 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 it, uh, Dick was originally from London, but the, but the they wanted to make the film in Los Angeles, so the compromise was New York. It was like you know halfway. So that so so they had a unit in L.A., they had a unit in, in London, and a unit in New York. So they were hiring for the New York group, and and again they were taking a lot of young people. Um, one of the things I noticed when I first got in the animation business was this, this generational shift. Because <clears throat> I noticed that all these, all the entry-level jobs in between as an assistants were all in their teens and 20s. And then the master animators were in their 60s. And there was nobody in the middle. It was like yeah. very few. And, and, and that was that, you know, between the golden age generation who did Snow White and, and you know, and, and Fantasia and all, and our generation, there was this big gap, which was, uh, a, you know, during the contraction of Hollywood in the 60s, if you were getting out of college, let's say in 1960 or something, and you said, I want to be an animator, people would tell you, don't be an animator, that job's, that business is dying, it's not going anywhere, yeah, you know, you know, and, and, and the people in uh, the people running things, 
um, didn't want to leave. They stayed still. It wasn't until the 70s when they started to think about retirement, you know, but it, there just wasn't any movement like that. Uh, uh, um, I, was I, I was talking with Steven Spielberg, talking about dropping names, and, um, it, and, and he mentioned that when he directed his first night gallery show, he was like 23, and his, everybody on his crew were in their 60s. Yeah, so yeah that, that, that was that generation, you know. So the great thing about Richard Williams was that he took young, young artists or like young aspiring talents like like me and Eric Goldberg and Dave Block and a bunch of other folks. Uh, um, and, 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 and we would do tests and work as assistants under these old master animators. Um, like, like I got a chance to work with Art Babbitt, who was the creator of Goofy and the Wicked Queen and Snow White. And I also had a chance to assist Grim Natwick, who, who was one of the lead animators on Snow White. And it was interesting because like, like Grim was 87 and I was like 20. <laughs> and, I was, and I was absolutely terrified. <laughs> like I thought, wow. I was so scared. <laughs> what, was that, what was that like to work with Grim Natwick? But uh, the fascinating thing with Grimm was that was that his drawings were actually very kind of simplistic. They were just like they look like scribbles, you know, and and uh, you know not like the classic sense we would think of drawings. But then when you flipped the animation, when you looked at it and, and moving at speed, the movement was beautiful. It's almost like he's like I'm too old to do tight drawings. <laughs> So, so it was like a shorthand, you know, it's what Bill Titley used to call forces. He says he wasn't animating figures. He was animating the forces. Wow. And so it's this beautiful energy to his stuff. And, uh, you know, and I learned so, so much from that, you know, like watching him, you know, plus he gave me his personal chili recipe. So I'm nice. Sure what, what kind of, what kind of a guy was he? Was he just a nice guy? Was he, I mean, you know, he was long gone before I got into the business. Yeah. Yes, he was. He was very nice. He was very sweet and, and um, uh, very nice with the, uh, you know, with uh, new talent, you know, helping people along and all. And, uh, and you know, and, and one of his protégés was Tisa David, uh, who was a Hungarian lady who also um, was a lead on Raggedy. And and she was a great teacher, too. She would always she would always show stuff because she was Grimm's assistant for a long time when they were at UPA. And, and, and it's cute because in her Hungarian accent, she'd be like, she'd be like, Tamash, you work for Grimm. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, but uh, yeah, it was interesting because, you know, Charlie Downs and Hal Ambro, who were other main animators, were also Di former Disney people. They were like sort of like the second tier, like below the nine old men. Well, they never broke into nine old men rank, but uh, they worked with Ward Kimball on, on the TV show. They did a lot of the animation for that. And all. But many of them were great animators. It was just that, you know, there was these nine guys and there was no expanding it to 10 or 11. It was just the nine guys. And there was there was a tremendous amount of really good animators underneath them. Yeah, that's true. That's true. It's like, it's like, you know, everybody knows Frank and Ollie and they'll call, yeah. but you know, people like, you know, John Sibley and, um, and yeah. And I said like, you know, uh, Cornelius Cole, Charlie yeah. Downs, you know, uh, uh, some, some excellent, you know, Cliff Nordberg, right. you know, yeah. You know, excellent animators, but they didn't break that nine old men's here, you know. And yeah. it's, and it's interesting because talking with um, Kendall O'Connor, who was a great layout guy, Kendall laid out, uh, uh, you know, 
did all the staging and the dance of the hours. And, and you know, that was like his sequence. And, and, and he was saying about how when, the, when Walt created the Nine Old Men in 1949, uh, you know, the concept, you know, of like these nine animators are like my, you know, the Nine Old Men. Uh, um, uh, other parts of the company were like, well, why is it just animators? Why isn't it a layout guy? Why isn't it like Josh Meador, the effects guy? Right, right. An art director. <laughs> yeah. And, and and wasn't it somewhat of a goof because it was sort of a takeoff on the uh, Supreme Court? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, yeah, the concept came up from when uh, when Franklin Roosevelt was passing, you know, his, his legislation for the New Deal to try to help America recover from the Great Depression. Some key elements were struck down. By the by, by the Supreme Court at the time, and and Roosevelt angrily said, like you know, nine old men are holding back, you know the yeah, you know progress, and so it became a joke about you know the nine old men. So. Right, right. I mean, you know, it, it, it's really interesting uh, when when you start talking about uh, you you brought up that that point of uh, you had these original animators that started with Walt in the '30s, and there was this sort of missing middle group. You know, and and it's almost like there was a small contingent, small relatively speaking, with the studio of you know forty, fifty animators or, or you know animation artists at the Disney Studios that just went from one picture to the next to the next, and then some of them you know moved from animation into Imagineering in the fifties and sixties, and. Uh, and and there was no we need animators we you know there was none of that going on there were there was uh, really not the need that you see today right yeah yes yes that's true uh, um like when I got out of school uh, you know when I was doing my first jobs in like 1975 76 uh, um, the total number of animated feature re- uh, movies in in theaters was like, um, in one year, it was like two. I think 1977, I think, was was like, a, 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 it was special, six. You know, yeah. and that was unusual. It was always like the Disney film that came out around Christmas. And then there'd be one other one, like the Ralph Bakshi film. Or Heidi Song. or yeah, Heidi know. Song or the Fantastic Planet, the French movie. You yeah. Know. You know, now, uh, for the last 10 years today, uh, um, it, there's been like 26 movies at least, but, you know, right? Yeah, at least, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's like two, about two a month. Yeah, yeah, like coming out all the time. And, and you know, we were just talking in our news segment about Technicolor announcing that they're going to be doing feature animation as well. You know, and and Technicolor has transformed themselves from a, a film processing lab company to uh, a digital visual effects empire. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, um, in, in in 2013, I wrote a uh, I wrote a book for MIT about the history of computer graphics, and 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 uh, I remember there was a story about how in in um, in 1980 uh, uh, there was a um, uh, there was a conference on new media that uh, Francis Ford Coppola and George Lucas hosted up in the Bay Area, and and, and they were talking about you know what's going to the coming of digital cinema. And one of the things Francis said was film, as we know it, celluloid is going to be obsolete. It's going to disappear. And everybody thought he was out of his mind. 
that's just like, that's absolutely crazy. I mean, film's been around for a hundred years. It's not, you know, and now it is an anachronism. I mean, even when we're saying, oh, I, I filmed this on my phone. Well, there's no film, you know, just, just right. like you go, I videoed this on my phone. Show me yeah. a video. There's no video. There's no videotape. It doesn't right. exist anymore. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And, 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 you know, it, it, it is interesting how, how the business is transforming because I'm sure you've seen it in your lifetime, in your career, uh, over the decades, because, uh, when, when you got into the business, uh, there were very few animation jobs and the business was, uh, almost on its, uh, deathbed, if you will. Yeah. Um, uh, and you had those big strikes that happened. And I want to touch on those uh, because when when did you actually leave New York and go to Los Angeles? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I just before I get to L.A., I just want to get one other little thing in, too. And that was while we were working on Raggedy Ann and, and, and you know, the offices were in Manhattan. Uh, everybody heard that out in Long Island, out in Nassau County in West uh, in Old Westbury. Uh-huh. There was this group of scientists that were trying to make um, animation with a computer. Yes, and, like that's weird. You know, you know, like when when you're a kid growing up, computers were things of the man from Uncle. You know, there there was something <laughs> that like the James Bond villain used. You know, like Blofeld or something. The idea that you would make cute cuddly characters with a computer was seemed ridiculous. It's like drawing with a missile or something, you know, it's crazy. <laughs> but anyway, so this group was the New York Institute of Technology and they had kids like Ed Catmull, uh-huh. Alvy Ray Smith, yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. and, you know, you, you know uh, Ralph Guggenheim, all the people who became the, the center of Pixar. They became, right. you, know, you, know, you know, Pixar's technological end. But they were first doing their first stuff and learning how to create, you know, you know they, they were doing the first surfacing and they were doing the first uh, a thing called tweening. They worked out the first, uh, that you could take a drawing, a pencil drawing and digitize it. And then, and then paint that, you know, digitally instead of like physically, mm-hmm. that was a big deal back then, you know, yeah. brand new, but, well, uh, to, to get to, to get to your, your, um, uh, question, you know, when the Raggedy Ann film ended and, you know, it didn't, you know, it, it, it didn't do that well. It was okay. I, I, it had like story weaknesses, even though the music was all written by Joe Raposo, who did all the music for Sesame Street. You know, he's the guy who wrote, can you tell me how to get yeah, yeah. like that? So, so he wrote some catchy tunes and all, but anyway, so the film was like, you know, some people have seen it. it it's cute. But, but uh, after that studio closed, everything kind of dried up because it was just commercials. There was nothing around. So everybody was migrating to the West coast because that's, that's where the work was. So I went out for a while and, and you know, the, the thing that you'd usually do is, you, um, you you get on the plane, you fly to California, you apply to Disney, get turned down, and then you get jet lag. And like, <laughs> that, that, that was the pattern. And, and um, uh, you know, because Disney was only hiring a few people at the time. It was like very, uh, they weren't hiring very, very many uh, outside of their training program. And um, uh, uh, so uh, I was working, uh, again, doing commercials. And also I, I did work in Hanna-Barbera. So I was working on uh, Scooby-Doo and uh, the Godzilla Power Hour. You know, they, what we're working on Godzilla. I remember we uh, got to meet Ted Cassidy, who's, uh, you know, Lurch from the Adams Family. Yeah, yeah. And he, like he was the voice of, of Godzilla, which just means he just went to the microphone and went, Ugh, uh. <laughs> 
<laughs> but that was another um that 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 was another um the, the great thing about Hanna Barbera back in those days was they had so many people from the business, again, like a lot of old people and all. So just walking around the the, the um hallways, you're like, oh there's Dave Tendler, who was an animator on like Betty Boop and Popeye. And there's um, Charles, you know, Nick Nichols, who was a, who was a, a lead animator on Bambi, you know, and and, and you'd have all, you know Cosmo Anzalotti, who was like a, a, a an assistant director to Ralph Bakshi, and so you had all these people who were all there. Plus the young folks like Duncan Marchbanks was like a few de- desks away from me, and. Um, People who would later matter, you know, Roger Chason, who later was a great animator on Jessica Rabbit, you know, uh, you know, the, we were all kids at that point. And uh, I, I, I gotta say, uh, George Scribner was there. Was he? Was he working yeah. there when you were there? Yes, he was. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's just. It was such a large building and everything. It was such a large complex at at at, at, at we call we would call it H and B, right? And uh, it, it's interesting too with with Hanna Barbera because you, you know at Disney you had the official conviviality that that you know um, precedent that Walt Disney set, where you didn't say Mister Disney, you said Walt. Right. And, you know, just like, yeah, it's like Dave or Tom or whatever. Um, at, at Hanna-Barbera, unless you were part of Bill and Joe's old team, Tom and Jerry group from MGM, to you, it was Mr. Hanna and Mr. Barbera. <laughs> like, yes, sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> Fantastic. Now, during that time period, they pretty much had a corner on the market for Saturday morning cartoons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They I mean, did. they they almost invented it. I mean, wouldn't you say? Yeah, they were they were really it. You know, they they were doing all the Saturday morning shows. They had um they had a connection with the networks. You know, Fred Silverman, who was like the big head of of programming at uh, at NBC. At, what was it ABC? Uh, um, you know, Hanna Barbera like had offices for him in their building and everything for for the network people. And you know, remember that time too in the late seventies. Uh, Disney, uh, Disney, in terms of TV animation, there was, you know, the wonderful world of Disney. And uh, it was mostly showing the old, you know, clips, the old stuff, or, or, or live action like Spin and Marty and all. Right. But there really wasn't animation, you know, coming out of, it wasn't until 1984 with the, with the uh, Roy Disney Eisner takeover that they got into, started to TV animation again. So they really kind of just left the field to Hanna-Barbera. Yeah, and uh, and then you had a couple of smaller players like uh, Filmation, uh, and uh, you had Ruby and Spears. Which, yeah, yeah, yeah. And those guys, Ruby and Spears, were an offshoot from Hanna Barbera. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like uh, yeah, Rudy Lariva was a uh, um, was an animator for Chuck Jones, and, and and Joe Ruby and Ken Spears were the two writers who created Scooby Doo. Yeah. Yeah, And and it was interesting, too, as I recall, um, uh, the Hanna-Barbera operation really dominated most of the Saturday morning cartoons, but it was still seasonal, wasn't it? I mean, did you did you you always could count on working for like nine months out of the year and then you were off for three months? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's how it worked. It was called a season. And which means that the network would approve new shows like around April, you know, March or April, you would get hired around then and you would work till about November. 
you know, you know, if you're lucky, you know, more like October or something like that, then you got laid off. And then you had basically had to figure out, you know, how to make do on either unemployment or doing commercials until like another project came around, you you know, until the next season and you got hired back again. But there there were, there were some people that were year round at those operations, weren't there? There were some artists that were doing development work and things like that. Yeah, mostly. Yeah. The, the thing about Hanna-Barbera is that they were very loyal to their to their original crew, mm-hmm. like the old the old guys who did Tom and Jerry and stuff, you know, in, in the in the 30s and 40s. And they were sort of elderly at that time. But, um, you know, Tex Avery was on a lot, you know, mm-hmm. and, and I thought it was funny that um, a friend of mine ran into Tex in the parking lot of Hanna-Barbera and, and you know, pulling, you know, driving in. And he says, Tex, you're working here now? And Tex said, hey, don't you know, this is where all the elephants come to die. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> and then, like, a month later, he died. Oh, uh, <laughs> wow. You know, this is, I have a question, Tom. Uh, you know, because the way the seasons of Saturday morning or Saturday, you know, afternoon cartoons at, at mm-hmm. Hanna-Barbera and at Filmation were, um, were you always d- just working on that season of animation? It was like 24 episodes still. You know, orders of the yeah. of these shows. So I would think you you'd be working on a at a fevered pitch to try to kick out all these episodes. Oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, definitely. You know, you know, like just to say that, um, you know, um, uh, when the way that we would tally up the amount of work you would do is we would call it footage, and, and you know, and, and and a foot of film, a thirty five millimeter film, is sixteen frames on twos. That's like that's like eight drawings. So it's like eight drawings per. Per, per foot, uh, 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 a foot and a half is 24 frames and everything, which is a second, you, you know, so it's like 12, 12 drawings. And, and so, so like when you're at Disney, our quota of Disney animation was three feet a week. So it's basically two seconds of, of, of animation. Mm-hmm. At Hanna-Barbera, your quota was 80 feet a week. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> so like that's, but I mean, a lot of it is, 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 you know, is the mouths talking and yeah, held, held, held bodies and yeah, sure yeah. The, lim- the limited movement of Saturday morning cartoons. Right. Yeah. 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 I would, uh, you know, and the supervisor would recognize like young kids that were hot to trot who wanted to like make a name for themselves. So they would give you the harder stuff. So I used to get stuff like, you know, Godzilla wrestling an octopus. And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> and then Tommy, you're not, you're not making footage this week. Yeah, but it's like an octopus. Can, can't you give me some blinks or something? <laughs> well, I, I, for one, was a big fan of uh, the Godzilla. I saw the Godzilla uh, cartoon in reruns, but I never understood Godzuki, his son, because uh, <laughs> you got to find out where the mom was. Where I mean, because Godzuki was so cute, but where was the mom? <laughs> hey, but they, were, they were taking their cues from Disney films where there is no mom. That's right. Yeah. Mom, yeah. <laughs> Poor mom. Who knows Poor what mom. Yeah, mom gets killed off. <laughs> King yeah, Kong must yeah. have taken her away. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, yeah, I know. Like we we used to call it Godzilla lays an egg. So yeah, like, that's right. Godzilla lays an egg. Yeah, it's a really strange the reproduction of those radioactive lizards. But I, I, um, but while we're on the filmation, I have to say, my wife Kristen was a huge fan of Shira and the Princess wow. of Power, and I know that you worked on on that um, on that series. But once mm-hmm. again, I mean, I, it was just really cool to see you working on those Saturday morning cartoons. I mean, they were a lot of fun. The Masters of the Universe and the He Man. Um, you know, so I don't know if you have any particular funny stories about working on those those series. Uh, oh, yeah. If oh, you yeah. guys were a bunch of jokesters there at Filmation. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I, I mean, you know, you know, you always have fun with all this stuff. And and uh, I remember when the week I started working on it, uh, um, uh, you know, I'm, uh, I was doing storyboards on that one, and and I looked at the uh, at the guy next to me and I said, oh, "Come on, seriously." The name of this show isn't really He-Man, right? It's like a tentative title. Like the real name is like Ragnar or Karnak yeah. or some sort of like some kind of guttural yeah. utterance kind of like primitive name. And he goes, the name is really He-Man. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. It's a gigantic hit. It's like, you know, to this day, I still get invited to fan conventions, you know, and, yeah. and there's, there's a whole culture of people just He-Man Shira. They just well, and up. Kevin Smith. We talked about this, uh, Al John, last week. Uh, Kevin Smith uh, is rebooting He Man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Super popular, yeah. super popular. Yeah. So yeah, you know, they left the guttural sound to Thundar the Barbarian, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, for Saturday morning. They, but He Man and Chira, yeah, yeah. No, no, it's all yeah. good. But yeah. yeah, it just seems to me like you had a lot of fun, you know, doing those those episodes, yeah. and it definitely comes through in the animation because. Uh, it, once again, just great classics, and and I know we're going to hit more on your Disney stuff. It's a, it, you know coming up with Dave, but but but, but Tom, I I wanted to ask the question though, like that was sort of the the heyday of H and B and filmation because of the fact that uh, you've got. Uh, 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 you know, so many people were working. There were so many shows being uh, put in production, but there was a big strike that happened that wound up sending a lot of that work overseas afterwards. Isn't that, uh, can you talk a little bit about that? And I bring that up because I want our listeners to understand that not only is Tom this great animator, he's had this magnificent career and he's a professor of animation and a historian and a book author and a director and all of these great things. Uh, but he was also, a head cracking union boss. Uh, he, I always like to say, I always like to put that in front of it. It just, it just sounds good, but no, he was, he was the, um, he was the president of the local 839 screen cartoonist guild, uh, which is part of the international association of theatrical stage employees, which is the, uh, the big union umbrella that covers all the guilds in Hollywood. Right. Yes, that's true. That's true. Then I know Tom Schumacher, our, our Disney producer, used to call me. He says, "He says you're my favorite cigar smoking union boss from Brooklyn." <laughs> oh yeah yeah that's right <laughs> you know and, and you know we joke about this because everybody when, when you know when you're when you're the president of a union everybody thinks of jimmy hoffa you know <laughs> yeah, and yeah. and uh you know the these uh the, these guys with baseball bats you know yeah. uh going in and uh going after scabs you know <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you know it's funny when the picket line in 1982 when there was a picket line set up in front of um uh, in front of Hanna barbera and it was like 300 pickets out front uh, um the lapd you, you know always sends like a, a unit to make sure there's not going to be violence break, breaking out or something and they said all these cops showed up and they, and and they got out of their squad cars and they looked at all these cartoonists and they were like you're okay <laughs> not, we'll, we'll leave a couple of guys here for traffic control. <laughs> That's hilarious. And, and we were like, can, can we overturn a toy car? Would, would that help? <laughs> but yeah, so the, yeah, there was this big union strike. Can you talk a little bit about yeah. what that strike yeah. was? Why, why did that happen? And were you on the picket line at that point? 
Yeah, I was on the picket line in '82, and, and everything. I wasn't president yet, but uh, the president was was uh, was Mel Gallup, and and his and the business agent was Bud Hester, and Bud was a uh, was a, a key cleanup for Mel Call and everything. So he was a, he was a lead uh, Disney assistant, and Mo was a layout guy, and everything. Um, but um, basically, it was it, it was they were trying to put in a protectionist legislation uh, in our contracts so that a certain amount of work always stayed in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. You, you know, like like we had no protections like that. And it's funny, you know, because I'd worked in Canada for a while, and 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 uh, you know, I was working in Toronto for a while, and and um, when when shows were produced in Canada, they had in their contracts. That before they could send stuff out, thirty percent of the production had to be done domestically, mm-hmm. had to be done in Canada before they would outsource. So, like the heavy metal movie, things like that, they uh, you know a certain amount of it had to be done in Canada. So in '79, they said, "Well, why can't we have something like that in our contracts?" That because we know that Hanna Barbera are sending stuff to Taiwan and Australia and Japan and Spain and different places. Why can't why can't we have something that ensures? a certain amount of the work stays in town. And uh, the 79 strike was successful because it kind of caught the studios off guard. So it kind of went really quickly. But then uh, but then they 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 planned for the 82 one. So so I think they were they were um they were kind of ready for when the contract was up again after three years. And it was a very divisive strike and it was a big you know and the other thing was at that time Disney had had no television presence at all, really. I mean, other than, um, you know, the Mouse Factory, you know, TV show. Yeah, yeah. Um, so they, so the decision of the of the guild to include Disney in the strike was controversial, because then the Disney wasn't outsourcing anything yeah. at the time. But they just said, in all, well, in order for the strike to work, they got to shut down all of Hollywood. Like it has to be the whole, the you know, every every studio. Right. And yeah, so that was very divisive. That was like six weeks, and um, yeah, a lot of people lost a lot of money and everything, you know. And then and, and then it wound up not, you know, failing, and all. We had to go back to work, and then a lot of work got sent overseas. You know, I, I was going to say that was really a turning point for the majority of the actual animation going overseas, yeah. uh, the Saturday yeah. morning animation uh, being done in studios in Korea and uh, China. And and uh, the Philippines and, you know, uh, Taiwan was coming on at, at some point. So uh, that that to me uh, really kind of, in a sense, it hurt the industry. Uh, yeah, and that was, pro- that was probably the depths of, of it all. Um, because it wasn't too long after that, that uh, the whole upheaval in management happened at Disney uh, in 83, 84, uh, you know, because uh, Roy Roy was involved with bringing in um, the Hunt brothers of Texas as white knights uh, to try and save the company from being carved up. And, and, and when Michael Eisner came in in 84 as part of the new management team with Frank Wells and they brought in Jeffrey Katzenberg, they were actually going to shut down Disney animation. Yeah, I mean, they, they really talked about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I, I mean, one of the producers told me at the time, he said, he said, when they looked at the company, they just saw basically, you know, about 120 people, you know, who would make a movie every couple of years for the niche audience. And 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 really the chief source of revenue uh, uh, for the company was the theme parks. 
the parks was bringing everything in. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and back in those days, uh, uh, an animated feature didn't make the kind of money like uh, Star Wars or, uh, uh, you know, giant, you know, E.T., you know, a big giant film like that. Uh, an animated film would, would like break even. And then it would really make its profit on, on TV and video cassette sales and merchandise. You know, and that's where they actually made their money on it. So, so like um, the the huge kind of profits that happened from Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast and Lion King, that was like a, you know a decade or so in the future. Right. But at the right. time, no, nobody could nobody saw that coming. Yeah, and and also, I mean, Disney had a whole library of films going back to Snow White and the Seven Dwarves that hadn't been released on home entertainment at that point. So that was all sitting in a vault, and uh, uh, and they were relying on the every five to seven year release cycle where they would re-release one of those classic films to the movie theaters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. True. That, that that was like the the, the standard pattern, you know, and and. Um, like, I mean, you know, I love the story. Um, I think I think Jody Benson was saying about how when she first accepted the um, the the offer to do the voice of the Little Mermaid, her other friends and on Broadway called her up and and offered her consolation. <laughs> they're, like, they're like, "Oh, you're doing animation, oh, you poor thing." <laughs> oh, you're you're really hitting the skids, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, when did when did you first uh, actually get hired at Disney? Well, it's it's it, it, yeah, I know it's a weird story because um, uh, again, it, it, you know, there's an old saying in the, in the animation business: you work with the same people, and just the producers change. <laughs> so, so you keep, you know, so Eric Goldberg and I, we worked together for uh, in New York, we worked together in London, we worked together at at Warner Brothers, and and we worked together at Disney, and and so it's just you go around. So uh, I was at Filmation in 87 and filmation was looking kind of shaky, you know, like they were, uh, the, the, the feature films weren't doing well and the TV series were wrapping up. So I thought, okay, well that summer I took the, you know, I went with my wife and, and, and we went to London and, and, and hung out with, with Eric Goldberg and his wife, Susan. And, and Eric had a, had a commercial house where they was doing uh, uh, commercials for British television. So while I was there, I went up to the, a, a, a unit in in North London doing the, the new movie Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and 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 uh, and I had lunch with a with a friend Chuck Gamage, who's a great great animator. Yeah, terrific Canadian animator. Yeah, really good. Yeah, really good. yeah. And and and, uh, and uh, so while we were having lunch, Chuck said to me, "Why don't you go say hi to Dick?" You know, Richard Williams. And I said, "Well, you know, I haven't seen Dick in a couple of years, and I don't know if he remembers me." He goes. He goes, uh, you know, Chuck goes, it only hurt for a minute. <laughs> so so, I, so um, when I came back, I stuck my head in the door and I said, um, hi, Dick. You know, I'm going to say hi. And Richard Williams went, oh, Cito, Cito, you must work on this movie. This is terrific. Yeah. And he grabbed me by the hand and he walked me over to Don Hahn. to Don, this is Tom Cito. He's funny. Hire him. And Don goes, you're hired. <laughs> That's pretty much how it went, didn't it? I mean, it. seriously. Yeah. yeah, that was we we worked in an electrical an old electrical parts factory building in Camden Town in London and it had been renovated into office lofts that were were like each floor I think was divided 
divided into like, you know, two big open spaces, you know, off of a, a, an elevator shaft, you know, and yeah. uh, and we had multiple floors in that building, as I recall. I, I, I think, did we have the entire building? I think we might have had the, think, the, the, the yeah, entire top three floors or something. Yeah, yeah. It was the top three floors. It was very big. The, one thing was funny was um, there was one day, well, well, you know, we were doing seven day weeks, you know, and it was like really, it's one of the hardest pictures to do. You, you know, it was, it was exhausting. And, 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 and uh, um, you know, because the film was co-produced with Steven Spielberg, uh, they would bring celebrities around once in a while. Right. So, you, you know, you see Jim Henson walking around or other people. And, and, and one time, one time, uh, um, uh, I think it was like on a Friday night, uh, uh, um, they they had like in a little in-house office party, and 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 the way the the English janitor staff works is 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 um, if the party's still going on, um, you know, at a certain time the janitors go home and don't come back till Monday. <laughs> so this is, so over the weekend the floor was sticky for like spilled wine and and trash on the floor and all, and the ele- and the elevator you know as the English would say the lift was busted, yeah. so so you had to walk the three flights. So Saturday morning, everybody's staggering into work, hungover and tired and all, and we walk in the door and George Lucas is there. <laughs> And they made George walk up three flights of stairs and like with all this junk around and go, oh, this is a great picture. Don't worry. It's going to be terrific. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I I, I have to to, uh, say that uh, we had uh, Max Howard on um, a couple weeks ago and we we were talking about this. And Max told the story about Phil Nibblink uh, pointing out the fact that there were slight drifts. And I, I didn't explain it at that point, but I wanted to explain it uh, here that one of the reasons why it was such a hard picture was when Zemeckis the live action director of the film was filming it was shooting the movie uh, with the actors they never locked the camera off so there would be even if it was a still shot uh, there would still be a slight drift to the camera and that had to be taken into account when you were doing the animation and that in and of itself made it so that all of the um, animation had to be on ones, uh, meaning that you had to do a drawing for every single frame of film. Uh, and, and that really made it hard. Yeah. 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 It's true. It's, it's when, uh, you know, Dick was telling me that when they did an early test of, uh, of Roger Rabbit and, and, you know, to see if the technique would work and, 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 you know, Zemeckis was saying, was telling us at one point, he says, look, he says, he says, we're not making some damn serial commercial here. He says, he says, I want you to believe that the tune is in the Roger Rabbit sitting on the chair, talking to Hoskins in, uh, in real life. You know, and, and he says, I want the characters to touch each other. I want them to grab their lapels and mess their hair up. And I want them like into, you know, physical contact between the cartoon characters and human beings. So when they did this original test, they did the lockdown camera, which is kind of like the way Ray Harryhausen used to do it. Yeah. Like if you look at Jason and the Argonauts and all, whenever there's a scene with with the with the stop motion skeletons or something, there's no camera movements. There's no zooming in or out or anything. It stays locked down. But Dick said that when they when they looked at the test, the footage didn't 
wasn't quite lively enough. It looked kind of uh, static. It looked, you know, so so Dick Williams' famous motto was he said, "In the end, the best way to do something is the hard way." So so, so Dick told Samantha's, "Just shoot your movie. Just shoot a movie, and we'll figure out how to match it." Yeah. So, so Zemeckis went and he shot a, a, a amblimation action comedy, you know, and, and, you know, and I got to say, when you looked at the rough, when you looked at the rough footage before there was any animation in it, it was already an entertaining movie. Like yeah. it, was, it was already very interesting, even with the empty scenes. And so 80% of our, of our corrections was um, registration. Was just basically, you know, you know, if the character's not perfectly matching the the live action, it looked like it was floating, you know, right. or, you know, and and like nowadays, there's a um, you could digitally compensate for that. Like of course, yeah, you that. can do tracking and you know digital tracking. Yeah, yeah, and we, and lock it. Yeah, when we were working on it, we thought we were doing the most technologically advanced movie at that time, you know, that could be done with cartoons. And in retrospect, now we were actually doing one of the final, one of the last traditional effects movies with, with, you know, male and female mats, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's an optical system that goes back to Georges Méliès, back to 1908. Right. Like a hundred year old, you know, way of making films because right after we did our stuff, Digital matting came in, you know, dust becomes there and and uh, sure. zealot, those things and all, and 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 everything and that stuff started to go digital. But we were doing it traditionally, you know, painted. Yeah, and and, and I think that uh, you know, again, not having a locked camera, it, it took the it took the technique of live action animation combination, which which had been known. I mean, people had seen it in Song of the South. They saw it in Mary Poppins. Yeah. Uh, they saw it in uh, with Gene Kelly and. Um, yeah, anchors away, uh, and, and so people were familiar with it. You saw it in uh, television commercials, um, uh, even as far back as uh, the Fleischer Studios uh, out of the Inkwell series with Coco the Clown. Uh, but uh, this uh, Roger Rabbit was taking it to the nth degree. It was, it was it was taking that live action animation combination to such a level that had never been done before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One one of the big changes, you know, to, that made it so interesting was the way char- uh, characters were, were lit, like in terms of lighting, because um, in Mary Poppins, and, and and the films done in that era, what they used to do is that they would take the live action people and they would they would put a lot of light on them, like mm-hmm. a lot of spotlights, and bleach out all the shadowing. All the shadows, uh, flatten them out, flatten them yeah, out, yeah. essentially. Yeah, because the cartoon characters were going to be flat, mm-hmm. and, and you know, and and, uh, and with Roger Rabbit, they did film noir deliberately, which is they wanted deep shadow. Yeah. So, so like a, a character like Jessica Rabbit had what they call halftone shadows, quarter tone shadows, and hot spots like highlights, you know, mm-hmm. hot areas where the where the where the camera lights are on them, and they had to be lit exactly like the human beings were. And everything because that made it feel like they actually were in the room next to them. So it's funny with Roger Rabbit that a lot of times some of the shots nobody notices are like the were like the hardest shots to do. Like there's a scene where uh, right after Marvin Acme gets gets uh, uh, gets assassinated, 
uh, uh, Hoskins looks through the uh, Venetian blinds down on the street and sees Jessica Rabbit running away. And she's throwing off like three shadows on the wall. Yeah. You know, and, and that was like a really hard scene to do. It, it, was, it was sort of film noir uh, look, you know, okay. and, uh, and again, all of those elements that were created for those animated characters were designed to help round those characters up and place them within the lighting of the scene of the live action scene. And, and, and when the audience doesn't notice it, that's the most successful, you know, yeah. because, because they believe the characters there, they believe the characters in that live action environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And and and, uh, and and it was so much fun working with the classic older characters too. You know, this whole idea of you could have Bugs Bunny and Mickey Mouse face to face. You know, and and uh, I got to do a lot of stuff at the end with like, and I got to animate Woody Woodpecker doing his famous cry. And uh, we kept getting messages from Walter and Gracie Lance saying, remember, you have to use the post-1945 Woodies and not the pre-1945 Woodies, <laughs> the Dick Lundy ones and not the earlier, you know, the whole <laughs> it, 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 but but you know it, it was fantastic, and I think that the pinnacle of it was uh, Donald Duck and Daffy Duck and the yes. dueling pianos. You know, yeah. it was a beautiful sequence, and it was yeah. so it was so so funny. You know? Just a lot of fun. But uh, I think Tom, that that was the first time I met you and Pat. Your wife Pat uh, was in London on Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. and and then when we finished the show, I, I came back to Los Angeles. Did you come back right away, or did you stick around in London? Uh, um, I stuck around for for a little while longer, just just to you know to to take it easy, and then um, I started on Mermaid and, and everything. Uh, Pat went to work on Oliver and Company. Right, right. And and and, uh, and then uh, yeah, I was on Mermaid when we were in the trailers across the street from Flower Street. Right, which is where I was. Uh, that's where the effects department was. We yeah. we we were the trailer rats. Yes, right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hey guys, when when you guys were working on Roger Rabbit together, did they put you up in like a really nice hotel or a decent hotel while you were working there? And how long did that last? Oh yeah, we ate caviar, drank champagne. <laughs> we were we were in the we were in the royal suites at the Dorchester. Yeah, that's it. I mean, that's what you know, I'm for months at months at a time. No, uh, I, I well, Tom, I, you tell us what your situation was because you were you were moved to London, right? Yeah, 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 and 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 while I was there, it's it's interesting, you know, because the the studio said that they would like find housing for you, but but uh, like we found that that the 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 estate agents, which is their term for real estate people, uh, you know, because they knew like Steven Spielberg's people are looking for rooms. So, so you know, the, the stuff was very expensive <laughs> you know, that they were talking about, and uh, so um, I kind of lucked out and and, uh, and was able to sublet from another animator, you know, who who had just moved in with her with her boyfriend, and so I got a nice place in, in Putney, and and um, but you know you know I had to take the train into work every day and all, and. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, I mean, we weren't really put up anyway. Interesting thing with with Zemeckis was that when Bob Z would be in town because he was he was also working on Back to the Future three, uh, two and three, and um, and and Spielberg was working on the next Indiana Jones movie. Uh, what what would happen is that Zemeckis would fly in from from Hollywood to London, and 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 uh, he, he they they found him a hotel that had a twenty four hour gymnasium. Because what he would do is he would stay on L.A. time 
So like instead of trying to like condition himself for London time, he would just, you know, get up at three o'clock in the morning and, and work out till, you know, seven and then have meetings in the morning. And, and, you know, so he stayed on a, on a, on a California like clock and all. So, so, and it was funny, yeah, because, because uh, for Dick Williams and the animators, you know, they, they would have meetings at eight o'clock in the morning and everybody's like, Oh God, I can't see. <laughs> well, you know, that was the thing I, when I was talking with Max, one of my fondest memories uh, when I started on who framed Roger Rabbit was my first week uh, in London. Uh, I showed up at the studio at like 7am in the morning and it was, like I had a bang on the door and a security guard let me in and a couple of days later max howard came to my desk with a set of keys he goes let yourself in now from now on <laughs> and, and, and so like i would come into the studio at seven in the morning or 6 30 in the morning and uh and most of the crew didn't get in until 10 yeah yeah it's yeah. true staggering you, you know they would work late and everything you know yeah they, so they worked at 10 at night or something but they but um, a lot of more morning people yeah, and I was a morning person, but I wasn't an evening person. So I, you know, I I kind of got it covered early in the morning. But uh, it was um, I I thought it was it was just a lot of fun. I mean, where the the yeah. uh, the studio was located in Camden Town, and I used to walk uh, to the studio. I didn't have to take the tube. I I was close enough that I could walk. Uh, and I always walk past the Monty Python studios. Nice. Oh, wow. And, yeah. And, and they they had this little sort of there was a muse that went into the interior of a set of buildings. And uh, I walk by that every day on my way to to the office in Camden Town. Yeah, I, I remember uh, um, when, when George Lucas uh, like addressed the crew and and, and he said, uh, well, it's obvious there's only going to be two hit movies in 1988. Roger Rabbit and Willow. <laughs> Half right. <laughs> One other thing was interesting uh, uh, was um, our uh, the other production manager Patsy Delord, who, who used to work with Spielberg a lot, was talking about how um, Sean Connery would show up because uh, they were working on Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. And 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 what I always found so interesting was that um, some some people who become celebrities or you know you know like walk around with an entourage. They have like bodyguards and they have flunkies and they have a personal assistant and they have you know accountant and they follow them around. Uh, she said Sean Connery show up by himself. Yeah, be completely alone. And 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 she and, and she goes, well, Sean, where are you going after this? He says, oh, I have to catch a plane. I have to go to Heathrow and catch a plane to Geneva tonight. And she says, um, how are you getting there? He goes, well, I'm going to take the tube. You know, and yeah. it's like, Sean, you know, like, let me get you a car. You, you know, and he goes, no, the traffic's too bad. I'm gonna, and, and he just walks down the subway and just, you know, he, he, he yeah. takes the tube. Sean Connery. It's awesome. amazing. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> So um, you came back and you started working on Little Mermaid in, in yeah. Los Angeles. And uh, and now you had a good run at Disney then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it, it was on, on that. And, and um, I remember uh, I remember when we were finishing Who Framed Roger Rabbit and, and, and while, uh, the last month or so. And, and I was talking with Don Hahn in his office and Don shows me this treatment. He throws this script in front of me. He goes, what do you think? Walt Disney presents Beauty and the Beast. And I'm like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> I said, Beauty and the Beast is a story about two people having dinner. 
You know, with a lady and a guy with a dog nose. And, and, you know, and the guy says, will you marry me? And she goes, no. And they go, well, um, when Don goes, well, well, I said, what's animation in it? And, and he says, well, all the, all the dishes and spoons are going to sing and dance. And, and we're like, well, big deal. I mean, they did that in Sword in the Stone, you know. <laughs> it's like, okay, I'm wrong. It was a big hit, you know. I mean, actually, when you talk about not being able to guess the future, when I was first getting ready to work on Roger and moving to London, I was talking with, a, with, with an old friend named David Silverman in, in L.A., uh-huh. and, and David said, yeah, me and Wes just got hired to work on these interstitials for the Tracy Ullman show. Uh, Matt Groening, the, the, the cartoonist in the L.A. Weekly, is going to do this new sitcom like the Flintstones. And I said, what's it called? And he goes, The Simpsons. And I go, David, that's not funny. It's just a name. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the Wellingtons, you know, the Andersons. He goes, no, it's yeah. going to be very funny. Yeah, like, th- 30 <laughs> seasons later. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like, David, get a real job. <laughs> just like, okay, I'm wrong. <laughs> so really, you know, I, uh, g- going on to Little Mermaid and, and then on to Beauty and the Beast and, and Aladdin, I mean, really, when you think about it, it was uh, Little Mermaid and Roger Rabbit really were the beginnings. And, and you could also argue uh, American Tale from Spielberg and Don Bluth. Those yeah. three pictures in 1988-ish, 89, were uh, really the beginnings of this big renaissance in animation. And, and yeah. really Renaissance and Disney animation, you know, it was sort of like uh, uh, life got, you know, the the Disney animation department, which was sort of in a what would Walt do state, uh, really got a, a, a burst of new energy. Yeah, yeah. It's, 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 it's funny because I remember when we were we were finishing Mermaid and, and Jeffrey Kassenberg, our producer, said this this movie is going to be the first animated film to, to, to break 100 million in the box office. And we thought he was nuts. And he was close. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty close. Yeah, you know. I mean, it did like 92 million in its initial run, which was huge. Yeah. Huge. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and, and and something Howard Green said uh, to me later. He says, you know, you know, the marketing executive said the merchandise of Little Mermaid was selling just as hot four years later as when the movie came out. Wow! This is, you know, this is people just love the characters. You know, yeah. and, and 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 I think they were surprised. Oh, absolutely, without question, Ple- pleasantly surprised. But yeah. you know, we we did Little Mermaid, and then we did Rescuers Down Under. But it was really Beauty and the Beast that was the one that cracked the hundred million dollar mark when it was released, yeah. and the phenomenon of uh, the theater owners reporting that evening shows were starting to fill up for those movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I remember uh, when Beauty and the Beast came out, going to a local theater in Burbank. And it was like a Wednesday night, 1030 show and it's sold out, you know, and it's a line, you know, and I thought no, no children anywhere to be seen, all yeah. adults. And it's like, this has become a date movie, yeah, you know, which is kind of amazing. Yeah. You know, because America has always had this um, issue since uh, starting with the boomers of that animation is just for children. Right. You, you, you know, I mean, Japan didn't have this problem and Europe didn't have this problem. America's got this thing about about uh, animation. Animation is just for kids. 
And yeah. you know, so the, the idea of going to see an adult animation, you know, was 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 uh, a, a, a novelty, a, a new idea at the time. But yeah. Beauty and the Beast and Mermaid were the first to crack that. They they really were. I mean, he, although you could say that, you know, Ralph Bakshi, when he did Fritz the Cat and uh, American Pop and Heavy Metal and Lord of the Rings, you know, uh, you know, he was trying to do that. But uh, the, the films didn't didn't really get the traction that the Disney films did. I think the Disney films had a much broader appeal, uh, much broader audience appeal, wouldn't you say? Yes, yes, absolutely. I, I know that when we were working on them, they used to say that the, the, the target audience was, was, was six to 60. You know, that's what we were trying to go for. Uh, it's interesting that with Roger Rabbit, uh, you, you know, Robert Zemeckis was very clear about the, 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 demo, the age demographic he was after. Was he said? He said. He said. He said. I'm not worried about getting children because it's a it's a cartoon and kids are going to want to see the cartoon. I got to get 18 to 25. He says that's what that's the core. That's the audience I have to go because and they're also the ones who go to the theater all the time because right. the older folks stay home and you know and watch HBO or something and and the really young kids are all doing you know video games and it's the dating packs you know it's the it's the it's the, it's the kids going out on dates and double dates they go to the theater you know like they go to the movies and stuff you know so yeah. it's trying to reach that audience and everything with a, with an anime and, and and you know and for some for, for a lot of uh, you know um, teenagers that age going to a cartoon is like oh that's kid stuff you know so trying to break that that image and everything and saying no no you you know it, it, it's cool to be an adult and see it so, well you, I, you got I, my I money I, I, you know something I was going to say, I can remember being, uh, you know, I think 17, 18 years old and going to a theater to see a re-release of Pinocchio mm -hmm. uh, on the big screen. It was the first time that I was going to see it up on the big screen. Mm -hmm. And uh, boy, I, I felt uncomfortable in the theater because I was like, you know, there was all these kids, you know, jumping <laughs> all over the place. And, you know, here I am by myself watching Pinocchio. I'm like, oh, God. Yeah. You know? Well, you know, but but you, you did get my money because I was in high school during the, the time that those films came out. And it was definitely date date night. And mm. so I could look out and I could see all my all my friends going on dates and and uh, we all went we went to bowling and then we went to the movies and then we went to have, you know, a pizza or whatever. And that's what that's what we did. And yeah. You yeah. Da you're I, dating I, us. And, you know, the, and the studios know this. I mean, they 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 hire psychologists like they plan as like the Normandy invasion. You know, like they there's yeah. a thing like, OK, what's the demographic that's going to see this picture? Like, all right. You know. Oh, yeah. yeah and, how, and how are we going to get the message out that they need to see this picture? Yeah. 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 You that's know. it. You know, but I mean, it, you know, that said, you know, frequently they get surprised, you know, like, a, like, a, you know, it's the thing I tell my students is that there's conventional wisdom until somebody proves you wrong. Like exactly. until Pirates of the Caribbean came out, like, like before Pirates of the Caribbean, if you went to a studio with a script and they go, I got this idea for a movie, Pirates, they'd be like, get out of here with that stuff. Nobody likes Pirates, Ugh. you know, and then Pirates of the Caribbean, Pirates are cool. Like, okay. Yeah. Now, like zombies are cool. Zombies are things, you, yeah. you know. So, so there's conventional wisdom until somebody flips it. Yeah. And then, like, then there's new conventional wisdom. So. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
So, uh, Tom, I want to ask you, because we, we are starting to run long, but I wanted to, to say to, uh, you know, get your thoughts on what you think of the, uh, the, the state of the industry and how has the, the sort of the base of animation artists grown since uh, you started? And, and this kind of plays in a little bit to your role as president of the uh, Screen Cartoonist Guild for, I don't know, how many years were you president? About a decade. Yeah. Yeah. So, years. Yeah. So, yeah. Talk a little bit about just the state of the business and and the increase in membership and and what you guys took on uh, as the industry was changing. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting that you know, even even you know, there's always uptakes and downturns. There's always you know, sort of. Like I would say, like, you know, Hollywood loves revolutions. It loves to turn itself inside out every once in a while. And, you know, the last big revolution was digital. You know, it's like when everything went, everything went to, to digital, there was a lot of traditional artists got laid off and all. But actually, uh, in terms of unemployment and all, um, animation is doing very good. And, you know, and, and it's become a, a global business. You know, what we used to just have, like, you'd have the, the, the Hollywood product, you know, you, you do stuff you do in Hollywood and then it'd be stuff being done in Japan and then it'd be some stuff done in Europe. But now, like, you know, a movie like Minions or Despicable Me, uh, you know, they did pre-production in, in, in California. They did production in Montreal and Paris. Uh, they did post-production in L.A. You, you know, it's sort of all over the place and, 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 and it's considered a Hollywood movie. You know, so there's a lot more influences now, you know, um, one thing I'm just a little concerned about, you know, which might just be in this moment in time is that is that um, with all the emphasis on on digital, uh, uh, you know, on on the latest software and the latest, you know, doohickey that that that, that we don't lose the sense of performance in, in, in animation, personality animation. You know, like when Milk Call would talk about his scenes, he wouldn't say, oh, I drew this scene. He said that was a good performance, mm -hmm. you know, because he yeah. considered himself an actor. You know, I, I, I think that's a, a, a valid point to touch on because there's an awful lot of companies jumping into the feature animation realm. Uh, you know, uh, aside from you know, obviously Disney and Pixar, you've got Warner Brothers, you've got Sony, uh, you've got uh, Netflix, uh, you've got, you know, Technicolor now announcing that they're going to be in it. Uh, you've got all of these different companies out there that are turning out animated films. And Al John and I have spoken about this over the months on our show. Uh, some of these movies start to blend into, you know, they're, they're blending together there. You can't really differentiate. And some of them have great animation and others, the animation quite, the performance isn't quite there. I, I mean, what do you attribute that to? Is it just too, too many films trying to go through a pipeline with too little talent? Um, I think that I think that's the case in, in, in some cases. Um, there's a there's a, a, a trend lately where where um, you know like what made Disney movies you know so appealing and all is is a lot of the performance you know the, the, there's witty dialogue but there's also what they did was interesting the, the pantomime you know the physical action was interesting uh, 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 there's a lot of stuff like we call motion graphics which is which is you, you you create a library of mouths and a library of eyes and you just you know illustrate the dialogue you know and and, and all the emphasis all the creative pressure is on the writing 
so you have very witty dialogue. You have very droll dialogue being done by characters just with replacement mouths. But don't you think it's too much dialogue? I mean, I that, so, that, yeah. that's what it seems like to me. There's just too much dialogue and too many humanoid characters. Yeah. Uh, you know, because yeah. I've looked at some of these animated films in recent years and I thought to myself, well, you could have shot this as a live action film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a thing, you know, the old director, Chuck Jones, used to complain about those shows. Is that he said, he said, that's not animation, that's radio. And so yeah. what do you mean? And he says, you could turn off the, if you can turn off the picture and you still laugh, that's radio. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know, know and, and to that point, like if you look at the script for Bambi, uh, it, it's a very, very uh, thin script. Yeah, I mean, there's yeah. not a lot of dialogue in that movie, and much of it is drawn out of the uh, performance of the animation. Yeah, you know yeah. The, the the visual, the just the the visual performance conveying a point without any dialogue. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And and, and you know, and, and that's the stuff that's you know that stays with that stays with uh, stays with an audience. It's right. watching a character. You know, you know, Pluto with a plumber's helper stuck on his butt is good for like two minutes of pantomime. You know, and just excellent animation. Uh, you know, it's hard animation to do, mm -hmm. but because it's a performance. You know, you know, just like, as much as like Chaplin or Buster Keaton. But but uh, it, nowadays it's all it's also sort of you know dialogue based. Yeah, yeah. And and where do where do you? Uh, I mean, when when you were uh, heading up the union, where what were your big concerns as far as you know the 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 two D animation was kind of sunsetting to some degree, uh, and the digital was starting to come in. Uh, was was there a movement within the union to uh, make sure that some of those new positions were coming under the purview of the Screen Cartoonist Guild? Yes, absolutely, because because a, a lot of those positions were being created. I mean, the the the, the traditional pipeline of production that was set up in 19, 1913 by John Randolph Bray. Uh, you, you know, Bray was this guy. He had a studio, and and uh, he started Max Fleisch and Paul Terry, like in mm -hmm. their careers. But he's the one who decided: you're a storyboard artist, you're a layout person, you do effects, you paint the backgrounds, you shoot the camera, and he created. John Job classifications for everybody, and those classifications stayed in place till the 1990s, when digital came in, where where it's like saying, okay, you're a you're a compositor, you're a lighter, you're a modeler, you do rigging, you know. So they're like new jobs and and everything that came in. So those categories had to be defined of what what their what their jobs were, and then and then we had to uh, you know we couldn't try to. Um, try to fit archaic titles onto onto these new categories and all and and and, and also to try to show people that that uh, you know the the union itself is not archaic because as soon as you as long as you have a lot of people working for a paycheck and one person in charge you're going to need you're going to need a union you're going to need somebody to talk you know you know uh, just sort of like talk on your behalf. Yeah, you know. So some of those new categories, though, initially were not under the uh, Screen Cartoonist Guild purview. Is that right? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. 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 So so there was a transition period, right? Was there pushback from the studio of, of making those categories union? 
Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, I mean, no, no studio head wakes up and goes, Oh, I think I'll give benefits to all my art people. You know? <laughs> like, you know, they're going to, they're going to try and do as little as possible to see yeah. what they can get away oh, with. Yeah. Obviously. Yeah. Get away with it. Yeah. 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 You know? so, like, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I remember one producer. Uh, you know, I was arguing with one producer about about the um, about them taking um, you know liberties with the overtime and making everybody work like late for free, and 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 I said, you know, that's a violation of California state law about you know forty hour a week, and then and and he said, well, uh, which would the. Um, basically, our policy is um, as long as nobody finds out, we'll we'll see if we can do it. And it's like, oh, okay. So it's like, as long as nobody calls you on it, <laughs> like, we're gonna do it until we get caught. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's basically it. Yeah. It, you know. And, you know. And, and the thing is, you know, it's it's um, uh, the thing that I found out is like, it's not that like the studios are evil and everything, or everybody uh, one side is bad and the other side is good. It's an endless tug of war. Which is like you're pulling on your the employees are pulling on their end, the management's pulling on their end, and to say you don't want to be part of it makes makes the other side just pull harder, right? You know, right. And, and, until you scream, you know, like like there's some games companies that that if you stop, they have software that if you stop moving your mouse for a certain amount of time, uh, a, 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 a voice comes on and says, "Dave, I see you're not working." Wow. You know, that's, is that, that right? Is that right? Creepy. Wow. Yeah, that, that's kind of creepy. Now, you know, you brought up something interesting when you said games companies like, you know, Blizzard and uh, uh, some of the other uh, operations that are out there. Um, are they, uh, are there uh, animators uh, all within the uh, Screen Cartoonist Guild? Yeah, yeah, yeah. For the most yeah. part? Yeah, I mean, it was really sort of after my presidency. Like, I was working with getting like the the, the, the theatrical and, and TV CG people involved, but games came afterwards. And and, and you know, when when games started, like in the eighties, uh, you know, like the first couple of games, uh, you know, the, there'd be a big building full of engineers and and technicians, and then the art department was like three was like three grad students, and you know, in a supply closet with the Preston Blair book. <laughs> and that was, the, that was the art department, you know, now, uh, a games, uh, you know, they have budgets like movies, they sure. have like huge crews. There are people that just are animators on games and designers and, 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 you know, art directors on games, just like they are on movies and they make a good living at it now. You know, yeah, so. you know, and that, and that's important to to note because when when you and I started in the business, it really was at the bottom of a very deep depression within the animation industry, and yeah. and now there's there's just an enormous enormous amount of job opportunities across multiple fields. I yeah. mean, it's no longer just animation at like a Disney. I mean, you're talking animation for live action films. Uh, an example would uh, would be any of the DC or Marvel uh, superhero films that employ tons of uh, animated special effects, uh, especially of the superheroes doing crazy things that, you know, flying and whatnot. And, and then you've got, uh, you've got people in the games companies. You've got people, uh, uh, obviously there's still commercials going on. There's the, I mentioned the visual effects, uh, but there's also Saturday morning, but now now you have all these streaming operations, you know? 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I was talking with some friends who were working in, in uh, at Weta in New Zealand, and uh, we were talking about movies. I remember when Guardians of the Galaxy came out, and I said, oh, I said, okay, Rocket, the, the raccoon, you know, the, with the big gun, right? Yeah. I, I, how is he done? And they go, oh, keyframe animation. I go, okay, so so Rocket is animated just like the Little Mermaid or Bart Simpson. It's just, you know, it's a different kind of render. Right. Uh, also Groot, you know, the big tree. You know, yeah. Groot. You know, that's that's keyframe animation. You know, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a normal thing, you know. Now, in the future, one of the things that's coming in, which is something to watch, is, is uh, some people, a lot, is this sort of real-time software where they'll take an actor in a mocap kind of operation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, yeah. Inst- and instead of doing a human character, they're doing a cartoon character, but everything that the human is doing is, is being done by the cartoon character. So, you know, will you even, you know, the thing like, well, maybe we won't need animators. We'll just work it. We'll just do it this way. And, you know, and, and, and it gets into an aesthetic argument because um, Ollie Johnston, one of the nine old men used to say, um, um, a Disney animation is not about copying life. It's about caricature of life. It's life plus. Yeah. You know, what makes it interesting is that it's a little more alive than alive. It's the illusion of life. That's the title for their book. Right? There you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, I think this is a great place uh, for us to break, Tom, because we've been talking for, for a good hour and a half almost. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I just like, I absolutely want to have you back on the show at some point because uh, there's so much more to talk about, but uh, I, I, it's just such a fascinating industry and there's so many more opportunities for people today than there were 30 or 40 years ago. Uh, and, and I think that's always important to get out there and hopefully is inspiring to people who are listening to this. Uh, but uh, with that, I want to say thank you, Tom Cito, for being on the Skull Rock podcast. Okay, thank you very much. I had fun. It was a lot of fun, Tom. I think, thank I, you so much. I think the right. secret of new filmmakers and new animators should be just having Tom consult with story and do the storyboards too. <laughs> they should just go ahead and do it. And then every one of those animated films will have their own their own personality and it'll rise up from the heap. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. Oh yeah, before before we quit too, I, I I have to put in a plug for my cookbook. So Oh yeah, yeah Tom, do that. Yeah. Please. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. you know, because you're such a multifaceted individual. Yeah. You know, and, and part of the problem when we're on this show talking to somebody is that there's always that, oh wait a second, we gotta talk oh, about yeah. this. Oh wait a second. You know, but yeah, please uh, yeah. tell us about the book. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, it it it, it actually starts. It's one of those things that starts as a joke and then turns into a serious thing, uh, um, uh, which is that I, I was talking with another uh, uh, animation historian about about some projects, and I said, uh, you know, uh, is there anything you ever wanted to do? I said, well, you know, years ago when I assisted Grim Natwick, I've got Grim Natwick's chili recipe. And I've got uh, Walt Disney's personal chili recipe. And a producer at Ghibli gave me uh, Hayao Miyazaki's ramen noodle recipe. He, he cooks ramen at night for his crew. And, and Hanna-Barbera, Bill Hanna used to cook it at, at night. He cooks Southwestern barbecue for his team after, after hours. So I thought, you know, you know, and a lot of animators like, you know, yeah, we'll eat together after hours. And I said, I could do a cookbook. And, you know, and, and the producer, uh, my publisher suddenly went, that's a great idea. So I started calling animators and like, um, 
do you have a favorite recipe? And, and it's like, you know, the Chuck Jones family gave me Chuck's recipe. And um, uh, it was a, a, um, Ted Thomas, Frank Thomas's son, gave me one of like Frank's recipes. And, uh, uh, you know, Michael Giacchino, the, uh, the, the composer of Pixar. Yeah. And uh, Pete Doctor gave me a recipe, and Ronnie Del Carmen gave me a, 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 a Philippine recipe his his mom used to make. That's right. And it just it just started to to mushroom, as they say. You know. What, and uh, what's the name of the book? Oh, it's called Eat, Drink, Animate. Yes. <laughs> Repeat. Yeah, 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 yeah an animated cookbook. You know? And, and, you know, and it's just it's just kind of a silly thing, you know. And it's funny because it, it goes everywhere from totally simple recipes to totally complicated recipes. Like I've got, I've got three people who, who used to be in animation who actually dropped out to become professional chefs. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Like one guy's a chef at the Ritz Carlton in Tampa and, and, and he worked on like iron giant and uh, you know, a few other, a few other films. So he gave me a great recipe, Robert Lentz, who was like one of the heads of story. at Yeah. Pixar. Yeah. Robert. Yeah, we, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a really good cook. Yeah, we, we're gonna have. We got to get Robert on this show. Yeah, you should get Robert. Yeah, yeah. yeah Robert's terrific. And and it's just funny that you just get all these like, you know, like one of the things they never get expected to be asked is like, do you have a favorite recipe? <laughs> the the funny thing too was like with um with uh, with the artists who were raised during the Great Depression. You know, like like John Kimball was telling me about, he goes, Ward Kimball's idea of dinner was open up a can of corned beef hash, throw in some peanuts, dinner. <laughs> there you go. There you go. So, there so the go. question is, before we let you go, Tom, because yeah. your book is available through, through so many different outlets. We're going to put a link on that, plus your website, TomCito.com, but, mm-hmm. you know, so people can get in touch with you. But what is your, what is your favorite recipe that's in the book? <laughs> Oh my goodness! Oh, there's so many and everything. Yeah, no, I like them all. Uh, did you um, can did you contribute them uh, your own? Yeah, yeah, actually, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, my family background is Polish, so so my mother gave me a bunch of recipes for like stuffed cabbage and all. Yes. But uh, uh, be, being the historian that I am, uh, uh, um, I actually do. Um, I actually put in a recipe that's ancient Roman, because no. one of the oldest cookbooks on earth was was done in like it, it was like 126 bc or something and and it's a roman cookbook and and believe it or not some of the recipes are actually pretty good you know i mean there's weird ones like you know you know door mice and and peacock brains but uh, but but i had a thing for like uh, it was like uh, uh, it was like roast pork and apricot sauce and um it's actually it's actually you know very tasty nice. <laughs> and all. Did, wow. did the ancient, the ancient so who who published the book uh, it's, um, it, uh, oh, it's, um, uh, uh, was it, uh, actually I'm, I'm looking at it right now. Uh, it? Uh, CNC oh, press, oh, right? Oh, oh yeah. CRC. CRC. Yeah, CRC. CRC press. CRC press. Yeah. yeah. I've yeah. got, I've got yeah. the, I've got the, 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 the little yeah. boilerplate here. It says Tom Cito, um, puts together perfect fusion of culinary skill and animation in his cookbook. <laughs> and it says here, um, it's a celebration of works from legendary animated artists from around the world and 12 Academy Award winners. And there's also yeah. anecdotes and behind the scenes of some of your favorite animated classics. So that sounds like a great book. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. yeah. It's, it, it's funny that like, uh, you know, yeah, I put in like little stories about people working, you know, you, you know, people work doing animation and like I was told a great story about, um, you know, when you're doing character animation, there's this period, uh, there's this one point when you're drawing that you, you're, 
concentration, your focus is so intense that you don't really, you know, notice like, you know, time's going by and the sun's going down. Uh, you know, we used to call that the zone or Dick Williams called it the flow. When you, when you, when you're concentrating so hard and somebody taps you on the shoulder and you go, ah, you, you know, so you don't know. But well, anyway, um, Iwo Takamoto who created Scooby-Doo uh, uh, was a lead assistant on Sleeping Beauty. So he was like a lead key on Princess Aurora. So, uh, and he was assisting Mel Call, and, and, and this was a young man. And, and, and I heard a story once that for, for, they were always playing jokes on each other. And so one of the things that, that, that uh, Iwo did was that when Milt was away from his desk, Iwo actually climbed into his desk, like got in, underneath inside by his leg because <laughs> he was a small guy. And he waited for Milt to come back and sit down and start drawing. And, and and Milt was animating and he got into that concentration where he just was unaware of everybody. And then at a key moment, Ewo grabbed his ankles. <laughs> and he says, Milt jumped up, screamed, and let out every Anglo-Saxon expletive in the place that you could think of. <laughs> That was back in the good old days when you could do practical jokes like that. Nowadays, it's so uh, everybody's trying to be so politically correct. If you did yeah. something like that, it would be assault or some crap. They would do things like they would open up your light box and, 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 and put and put like you know, some anchovies in there. And, yeah, oh, or oh, garlic, oh. a little clove of garlic on top of the bulb. And as you were working, the person would start sniffing and like, is there something burning? Yeah. <laughs> what? Yeah. Is somebody eating garlic? What is going on here? <laughs> and, and, and that that little clove of garlic, with you know, which is curved, is sitting on the bulb, just cooking <laughs> yeah. from the heat from yeah. the, the light bulb. Yes, yeah. You, they bring yeah. bring out a cracker, and then you've got uh, your roasted garlic right there. there yeah, you go. that's it. That's oh, yeah, it. one of the was it um, Benny Washam was one of Chuck Jones' animators. Used to um, uh, was it um, used to take the the water cooler bottle. And, and and empty it out and fill it up with like martini mix Ooh. or something. It's just <laughs> that actually sounds like fun. <laughs> yeah. All right, Tom. I'm okay. glad we got the plug in for your cookbook. Congratulations you. on that. We look forward to having you back in the future. And again, once again, thanks for so much for being on the Skull Rock podcast with us. My pleasure. All right. Your attention, please. Now loading on track number one. For a trip around Walt Disney's Magic Kingdom. Skull Rock Podcast. All aboard. Your Main Street to the world of Disney. Well, what a great, awesome interview that was. A lot of fun. It, it really was. I mean, he's such a funny guy and, and just an incredible talent. And he's just done so much throughout his entire career. I mean, just unbelievable. It's just, and, and again, you know, we can't possibly cover his entire career. So we, we, we did a little sort of snippet of his career with some great stories from early on, but uh, he's, he's somebody who we will have back at a future date to talk further with. Well, and that's great. Uh, always looking forward to having your guests back for the sequel, the return. It's always going to be a good time. And I tell you what else is going to be a good time next week when we do an ask Dave anything show, 
Hey, I, I got to say, Al John, this is uh, it's going to be a fun, fun show next week. Looking forward to it. And as I would say to uh, you and everyone else, there's a great week ahead. Uh, I hope you all enjoy yourselves. Go out and be kind. The world is really opening up, if you haven't noticed, with the traffic and everybody out and about. Uh, so peace and love and uh, be good. I'm Al John Go, co-host of the Disney List podcast, as heard on Sorcerer Radio, as well as Skull Rock podcast. Here with my wife, Kristen. Hello. Hello. You are an earmarked agent who books Disney travel vacations for people all the time. Give our listeners a reason why they want to give you a call instead of just booking a trip by themselves. Well, I can do all of the legwork for them. I have expertise. I've been to the Disney parks well over a hundred times so they've got that knowledge at their hand as well as it saves them time and money where can people get in touch with you so that they can book their next disney cruise disney park trip adventures by disney they can contact me at theme parks and cruises at gmail.com i'm kristen hetzel vacation planner world traveler disney foodie and theme park fan I'm Al John Go. I'm the husband who's also Disney, Star Wars, and Marvel Comics fan. And together, we host a Disney List podcast. Every week, you'll hear us list our favorite things about Disney theme parks, films, shows, travel, Marvel, and Star Wars in a top 10 list, rankings, and more. That's an impressive list. Subscribe to the Disney List podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast platform. You can even stream us on Sorcerer Radio at srsounds.com and check out our live shows on Facebook, The Disney List Podcast. Visit thedisneylist.com.